good number of years ago now, Karen and I were in a church where there was a pattern or a dynamic, but it was one that most people in the church knew nothing about. And that was this. Every week, a few leaders and influencers, many not a part of the formal leadership structure, would meet ostensibly to pray, and they would discern things about other people. Now, would you guess that those discernments were positive or negative? You're good. You've been around. Anyway, what would happen is that people in the church, usually one or two at a time, would be given by this group some kind of psychological label, occasionally a demonic label, and if they really wanted to go all in, they would give them both. Okay. And then because that person or persons were obviously therefore dangerous, they would be asked to step down from their ministry, even though there was no real reason for this. Well, as you can imagine, it became utterly intolerable. And so about half the church left. And just living through that time, the confusion, the darkness, and j just the mistruths, accusations was so difficult. Uh, we had to explain to our son, who was 12 at the time, sorry, your best friend, you're not going to see him much anymore because he was no longer coming to the church. And I understood why. And finally, the pastor was forced out. I helped him pack his office. He was not in a frame of mind to be able to pack on his own. And, and my uh, Karen was with his wife. It, it was just one of the most painful experiences of my life. I came this close as a result to giving up on all churches forever. So I have done quite a lot of thinking, actually, since then. What went wrong? How is it that a church that is basically healthy and functional could become so desperately ill? Well, Christianity gives us an answer to that kind of question. How do things go so bad? And it's a robust answer. It says that evil comes from three interlocking sources. And just to refresh your memory, uh, and I will explain how I saw each of these in the church's nuclear meltdown. The first is what might be called the world. The world. Today we would call this unjust structures. Meaning that in the Bible, the, the word world is sometimes used, rather often at times, especially like in John, to mean like systems, cultures, laws that function in rebellion against God. They're not submitted to God. They don't care about God. And this explains, for example, why as soon as one group of people gets any power, they use it to benefit themselves and to keep others down. This is why governments are authoritarian. This is why laws are racist. Now, in that particular church, I now see that the world was a leadership system in which a small group of people kept control by basically... Uh, purging the church of others who would threaten them. That's the world. That's, that's a source of evil. And then there's the flesh, or what we might call sinful individual choices. Okay, we get this, right? This is why people gossip. This is why people steal. And as I look back, one of the key people in the core of that issue had a lot of fear, bordering on paranoia. 
and so she would assassinate the character of other people, right? So the world, the flesh, that explains so much of what goes on. But the Bible says not all the bad things that happen, friends, can be attributed to solely those two interlocking sources. They explain a lot, but they don't explain everything. And, for example, why is it that people so frequently do things that are not even in their own interest, that are harmful, self-destructive? Why do they blow up their own lives? Why was it that that small group that kept sawing off the branches that other people were sitting on eventually sawed off their own branch? That doesn't make sense, right? I tell you what, I mean, it just, there was a sense at that time, it felt like, okay, we maybe weren't in hell, but we were in the suburbs. You could smell the sulfur sometimes when the wind blew this way, you know? And the Bible explains that this third interlocking source of suffering is evil spiritual forces. And intelligence or intelligences that are opposed to God and all that is good. So in the Bible, you get a number of names, uh, usually the devil or Satan. But this evil intelligence that is opposed to God hates healthy churches, among other things. Also hates healthy marriage relationships. I mean, there's all kinds of things where it would like to bring that down. Now, it depends on kind of what segment of the church we're in as to which of those three you pay attention to. But I would have to say, broadly, culturally speaking, we have sharp eyesight these days to pick out oppressive structures. So when the world gets going, we kind of see that. We can kind of notice and call that out. And the flesh, we can definitely notice that and usually attribute it to psychological causes. Or we go political and blame that other group over there, something like that. But often, can we say, we are mostly blindfolded to the fact that there are evil spiritual powers at work opposing God, opposing the followers of God, meaning you and me. These powers, by the way, are the ones that Jesus believed in. Jesus was tempted by. Jesus taught about. And Jesus cast out. So tonight, I invite you to come along with me as we take a closer look at these evil spiritual forces. What exactly are they like? And then how do we defeat them? How do we stand protected from them? And certainly, one of the best places in the Bible to go for questions like that comes right here at the end of Ephesians, this book that we've been studying for the last six weeks. Now, Ephesians, as I've dubbed it, is the church unity handbook. Paul says in this book, in a way that he doesn't anywhere else, that God's plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. This is going to happen. All things will be united under Christ, enthroned forever. When we say he's king of kings, we mean king of all kings, all world authorities. And Paul has also then gone on to describe what unity looks like in our churches and in our relationships. But... Paul's a smart guy. He's not naive. So he knows, oh, yeah, I've painted this amazing picture of what God is doing, which is absolutely true, but everything I just told you, everything that God wants to do, will be fought bitterly against. So before he closes his letter, he says this in Ephesians 6, 
starting at verse 10. Finally, after all that I've told you, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in these few verses, what is Paul telling us about our enemy? Well, first, it is powerful. Notice the words he uses. Rulers, authorities, powers, forces. These people have some power. Or not people, but these entities have power. And the Christians who got this letter would have totally understood this. They lived in a city, Ephesus, where this happened. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Now that is amazing. Exorcism with a handkerchief. So, seeing how strong this name of Jesus is, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. They're excited that they've got this new weapon in the arsenal. It says that seven sons of a Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. Remember, seven guys. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So let us not underestimate the power. Okay, the second thing we need to know, evil spiritual forces are powerful. They are also invisible. Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You can't see it like this. Notice in the uh, head-to-head face-off between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness, the Bible never depicts what Satan looks like. You know, so filmmakers have struggled with, what do I do with this? Instead, what it does is it describes those invisible temptations that he enticed Jesus with and tried tried to bring him down with. So powerful, they're invisible, and last, they're evil. Paul calls them forces of evil. They don't want anything good for you. You cannot negotiate with them. You can't believe a word they say. As Jesus said, there's no truth in them. When Satan lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. How do you know when the evil spiritual forces are lying? The lips are moving. Okay, and then Paul uses the words, the devil's schemes, to warn us that he's really good at deception. So when he comes into a church, he's a wolf, hungry, looking for a sheep to eat, but he dresses up like a sheep. Now, at that church I mentioned earlier, the pattern in this small group of discerners seemed really good. It seemed very sheep-like. Let me walk you through this. Like I said, I've done a lot of thinking. It seemed like they were focusing on keeping the church holy and pure from leaders who had some issue, right? And so, but have you noticed that in the very few times in the New Testament where a church is asked to separate from somebody, when does that happen? After they've clearly sinned. 
after multiple conversations to try to get them to return to their senses. After multiple conversations to get them to return to their senses and an utter refusal to do so. Then with broken hearts, you say, you, you, you're not a part of us anymore. You're leaving us. It is never because you one day with some friends discerned something about a person. You see? So, in fact, this group even used the phrase, don't dialogue with darkness. And they were the ones who were bringing the darkness and the division and the hate under the guise of holiness and purity in the church. It looked sheepy and it was wolfy. Now, how do we defeat a spiritual forces that are powerful and visible and evil. Not on our own, that's for sure. But where we are weak, God is strong. So Paul gives us two ways to be strong in God. And would you believe they alliterate? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Put on the armor of God and pray to God. Put on the armor of God and pray to God. Now, verse 13 Paul says, therefore, since that's the kind of enemy we have, therefore, here's what to do. Put on the full armor of God. So so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Now, Paul, with the word armor, is using an analogy of the equipment of a Roman soldier. So we get that. And he lists six pieces. Stand firm then with one, the belt of truth, buckled around your waist, two, the breastplate of righteousness in place, three, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, four, shield of faith, five, helmet of salvation, and six, this is not helpful anymore, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, it is easy to get kind of caught up in that metaphor, that extended analogy, and analyze each piece of armor and, uh, and maybe it's just me, but I've never been quite clear what I'm supposed to do with that, right? Like, what does it look like for me or for you living as a Christian today? For example, I'm supposed to put on the helmet of salvation. But didn't Paul say back in chapter 2, I've already put on the helmet of salvation by faith in Christ, and this not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast? I didn't understand. So I've gone to work this week, and let me give you my best shot at it. And y'all can correct me, seriously, afterward, if my thinking is, is not helpful to you. But I'm trying to make it so it's understood, understandable, because I didn't understand it. All right, the first thing I want to set forth is that I've always thought that Paul was talking to the individual Christian. You, Kevin. You, Charlie. You, Jan. Put on the full armor of God. And I don't think that's wrong. That'd be fine. But that is not Paul's emphasis here. Remember, he's writing this to the entire church. Every verb here is plural. It's saying, y'all put on the armor of God. Or even better, y'all together put on the armor of God. So the armor is not so much about me, although it is partly. It's really much more about we. It's It's for a church to put on. Not just one soldier, but the whole military unit. Take, for example, the shield of faith. Now, yes, each Roman soldier is given a large rectangular shield. It's about four feet high, about two and a half feet wide, 
It's made of wood. It's basically like walking around with half of a door. Okay. But Paul knows that when those Roman soldiers go into battle, they use what's now called the testudo formation, which is just an Italian word for turtle. The turtle formation. And the soldiers pack close together. Maybe you've seen this in some Roman era movies. And some hold their shields to the front like this. Some hold them over top. Some hold them out to the sides. And so no arrows can get through. It's like their entire unit is inside and under this giant turtle shell. Okay? Listen to how Plutarch talks about Mark Antony's troops in 36 BC. Then the shield bearers, who were kind of out in front, dropped down to one knee and held their shields out as a defensive barrier. So now you've got shields all like this in the front to block any arrows coming in that way. The men behind them held their shields over the heads of the first rank. Got that? And then the third rank did the same for the second rank. The resulting shape, which is a remarkable sight, looks very much like a roof and is the surest protection against arrows which just glance off it. In fact, this formation is so effective that British riot police still use it. So did American protesters in the George Floyd riots. It's very protective. So Paul's saying this as I can understand it. Christians, dark spiritual forces want to destroy your church, but if you stand side by side with all your shields of faith held together and covering each other, you're going to be fine. You will hold your ground. You will still stand. So what does this mean? Church, we need each other. When an arrow is coming to me and I get some bad news and my faith is wavering, I need your faith to cover me right then. I need your encouragement. I need your prayers. Because I'm a little weak and vulnerable right then. You know what? Someday that's going to be this other way. You're going to be wobbling. And you're going to be like, man, I don't know if this is real. I don't know where God went or if he cares. Then maybe I can edge over closer and some of my shield can help protect you at that moment. All right. Now, you do that for the armor of God. Now, what exactly is the armor of God? Well, the phrase armor of God is a little ambiguous because it can mean, and what I always thought it meant, the armor that God hands out. Right? The armor that God hands out, which it can mean. But I wonder if it also means, and maybe more means, the armor that God wears himself. Watch this. Paul right here is drawing on verses from Isaiah like this one. The Lord put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. That's speaking of God. So Paul's probably saying, church, Wear the armor God wears, meaning become more like God. Develop God's qualities. Grow in his character. Which is why one scholar looking at this says, you know what? When Paul says in chapter 6, put on the full armor of God, it's really about the same as when he said back in chapter 4, put on the new self in Christ. Now, let's imagine, shall we, what happens when a church does this and puts on the armor of God. Suppose somebody here at Savior really hurts you. And you tell a couple of your friends, and they're also really bugged and hurt and upset about that too. So now you and they feel hurt and angry, which is natural. Okay, This stuff happens all the time, right? We live together. This, this happens. Well, 
Paul says in this same letter, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. Apparently, when we kind of nurse our anger rather than deal with the situation, when we refuse to forgive that person who hurt us and avoid them, we give the devil some traction, a foothold to get things going in the church. And the devil looks at that and goes, you know what? I can help you with that. And the devil, without, and we're not seeing his invisible forces, you and your friends start to think, you know what matters here? This one issue. If we have to leave over it, we will. If we have to divide over it, we will. Because what really matters more than anything else right now is this issue. And they may be right, but they're going to end up harder, colder, and divided. Which is not part of God's plan to bring all things together in unity under Christ, his Son and Lord. As Francis Chan put it, when love is shallow, all it takes is something as trivial as a disagreement to divide us. Okay, now, imagine that same exact situation, only this time we're wearing God's armor. So you have a conversation with someone, you're the person who's hurt, and instead of that person here at Savior just adding fuel to your fire, they actually help you put on truth saying something like, you know, that must have really hurt, and I'm very sorry that happened to you. But you know what? The truth is, we who are strong must bear with the failings of the weak. And along with that belt of truth, we put on the word of God. Someone at church is leading out in the Lord's Prayer, which is the word of God, and you get to that phrase, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin, and you realize, whoops. Does that really mean that I'm forgiven to the extent... <laughs> that I am willing to enter into forgiveness? I got to work on this. That's just with two weapons. Belt of truth, word of God. Do you see how when we all put on the armor of God, no unnecessary division opens up in the church? Instead, what happens is we become more mature. Satan loses. God wins. All right, well, I wish I had even more time, so let me... <laughs> Move to this. Uh, pray. Paul kind of climaxes this whole section with pray. And pray in the spirit. This is verse 18. On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Did you hear all the alls? <laughs> pray in the spirit on all occasions. Is there ever a bad time to pray? Not really, no. With all kinds of prayers and requests. Always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. All right. Uh, I'm going to skip that. I'm going to skip that. Let me just say, uh, there's such power in group prayer. In recent months, the staff and I have felt moved to try to expand our number of group prayer opportunities here. And so on September 11th, we're piloting an all-church retreat. Um, we're also working back to working to bring back something that we lost during COVID prayer ministers so that during the service, you can go and get prayer from somebody and, uh, Lord willing, that'll restart October 1st. And we're thankful that Marge Mead is, uh, working with pastor Sarah to try to bring that back. Uh, for the last couple of years, we've had two all church prayer gatherings, one fall, one spring this year. We're hopeful to offer more. We're working out the schedule and details right now, but there may be as many as seven prayer and praise nights. Come if you can. 
And finally, in October, we're going to do a three-part sermon series called The Prayer Lab, where we're actually going to use this sermon time to actually practice certain types of prayer and learn those together. Okay? All right, friends, I'll close. As Christians, we need to be aware of the spiritual forces of evil. They're real, they're evil, they're invisible, but we need to be aware but not afraid. I really mean that. The Bible says that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. He actually made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It says that the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. It says that God has prepared an everlasting fire for the devil and all his demons. And knowing that, we can put on the armor of God, we can pray to God on all occasions, and we can just go forward without fear. Amen.